All right, good morning, Hellas Church. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you, Jake, for leading us in worship in that way. Um, my name is Jeff. I serve as one of the elders with our church. I serve primarily up at our Edmonds Expression, but I always do very much enjoy being here with you in Wallingford in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue this summer sermon series that's pretty unique in the life of our church as we hear from a number of alternative voices as Andrew and the Arthur family are on sabbatical this summer. And today I'd like to share with you uh, some thoughts about Psalm 27. So let's read this passage together and then let's uh, spend some time talking about it. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For He will conceal me in His shelter in the day of adversity." He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your, turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversary, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes or false witnesses. Rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord, it says. And so this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God for that. Now, back when I was a college student, I took a road trip at one point with a few of my friends to, uh, to Yosemite National Park in Northern California. You may, be, you may be familiar with this place. We were... You see, we were very much into rock climbing at the time, and we were, in fact, quite obsessed with rock climbing at the time, and Yosemite National Park was and still is a rock climbing mecca in every way, and really one of the most beautiful places that I'd ever seen. And so off we went. We hit the road one afternoon from Southern California where we lived, and and we got pretty far along, but it was getting late, and so we decided to stop uh, and to stay the night at a roadside motel a couple of hours just outside of Yosemite, and what we planned to do was to get some rest and then drive the rest of the way first thing in the morning, and so that's what we did. But one of the ways you get to Yosemite National Park, at least coming from the south, it takes you through this very long tunnel. It's called the Wawona Tunnel, and it's nearly a mile long. It's the longest tunnel in the state of California, and this tunnel is literally, it's literally bored through solid granite. And right at the end of the tunnel, you come out of the tunnel and there's a viewing area off to the side where you can pull over and and get out of your car and really take in this very, very special view of the Yosemite Valley. It's called the tunnel view. 
the tunnel view. And from that particular spot, you can see the entire Yosemite Valley. You can see all of the famous granite formations that the uh, park is known for. You can see El Capitan and Half Dome and Cathedral Rock and Bridal Veil Falls. You see the picture of it there, which really doesn't do it justice, but it's truly a spectacular view to, to take in. But when we pulled through the tunnel that day, we were disappointed to find that there was a layer of fog resting over the entire valley that morning. And that layer of fog, it was obscuring from our view what we had hoped to see so badly to kind of kick off our weekend in Yosemite. You know, we had, we had heard about the tunnel view, we had seen pictures, but we had never really taken it in and experienced it for ourselves. Now, it turns out there were some others in the parking lot that day, too, that, like us, wanted to experience the, the beauty of the tunnel view, but like us, they were frustrated as well by the poor uh, uh, visibility that morning. But one of those people, they told us we should stick around because the forecast, you see, it was indicating that the fog would be lifting very soon. And so that's what we did. We hung around for a little bit. And sure enough, they were right because, because before we knew it, we began to hear some, some oohs and, and some ahs as the clouds began to break and as the fog began to lift. And we were able to begin to experience and to enjoy this truly spectacular view. Now, friends, here's the reason that I, I share this story with you today. There was incredible beauty to be seen that morning. It was, it was right there in front of us waiting to be seen. It hadn't gone anywhere, of course, but we could not experience that beauty. We could not enjoy that beauty in that moment because the fog was obscuring our view. We could not enjoy the beauty of that view until the conditions changed, until our visibility uh, improved. And my hope this morning is that this passage, Psalm 27, might help us together to kind of clear away any fog that may be obstructing our view and keeping us from, from taking in the true beauty of who our God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. Because the more we're able to clear away whatever may be obscuring our view of our God, the more I believe we as a people together will draw nearer to him and will experience and enjoy him in deeper and more meaningful ways. And we'll be asking three questions of this passage about the beauty of God, why we need it, what it is, and how we can see it more clearly. And so the beauty of God, first, why we need it. In verses 2 and 3, you heard that certain people, evildoers, it says, were coming against David and seeking to destroy him. It said armies were surrounding him and war was breaking out against him. In verse 5, it says that the day of adversity was coming at David and coming after David. Many translations call that the day of trouble or the day of adversity. And one thing that we know about David is that the, the day of trouble, it seemed to be coming after him all the time. David often seemed to find himself in very real danger and under very serious threat on his journey to become king and also uh, in his journey as king. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that God would often help David in his day of trouble, but, but not always in the ways that David may have wanted God's help. You see, if we're not careful here, we can read this Psalm and others like it too and think that the answer to the day of trouble is that God will remove that day of trouble for us. And at times he might, at times he does, at times he did for, for David, but that's not what it says here, and that's not... That's not what the Bible says, generally speaking, either. Verse 5 of this passage doesn't say just turn to God and trust God and he'll keep you safe from your day of trouble. 
No, verse 5 says, turn to God and trust God and he'll keep you safe in, in your day of trouble. God promises to keep you safe, not from your day of trouble, but in your day of trouble. And as Christians, it is critical that we understand the difference. And this sounds somewhat similar, doesn't it, to Psalm 23, a very famous psalm written by the same, same King David. Psalm 23, you may know it. It starts out with some very beautiful language, some very beautiful imagery. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my, my soul. And all of this sounds, sounds very warm and very wonderful, doesn't it? And then get this, in verse 5 of Psalm 23, David says, Lord, you, Lord, you prepare a table for me. And that, that sounds quite nice too. But as you keep as you keep reading, you find out where that table is located. It says, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It doesn't say, Lord, you prepare a table for me protected from my enemies, though sometimes he might. No, it says, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And so David here is being, being honest here. David is being realistic here too. He, David assumes doesn't he? There will be much trouble in his life. He assumes there will be many struggles and much suffering in this life, but David has a strategy for facing it all too, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, you may be saying, hang on, wait a minute. I'm not really uh, facing any assassination attempts at the moment. There are no armies surrounding me. I'm not fleeing for my life like David was, but, but is that entirely true? The fact of the matter is you have many enemies coming at you and coming against you in your life too, don't you? There are many battles, in fact, that you have no choice but to turn and to face. Sin is most certainly seeking to surround you and to seize control of different areas of your, of your life. Satan is certainly seeking to deceive you and to distract you and, and to devour you even in, in different areas of your life. People will come against you in this life to take advantage of you, to step on you, to step over you as they step past you to achieve their own agendas. People will use you, they will misuse you, they use you, they will even abuse you in your relationships with them. Disease and despair and death are coming after each one of us in this life. It's only a matter of time before they begin in one way or another to catch up to us. And so the truth of the matter is the day of trouble that David speaks of is relentless in its pursuit of each one of us. It does not let up. It keeps on coming and it keeps on coming at different times and in different ways. But what David is going to show us here in Psalm 27 is that there is a condition, there is a strategy available to you and you and I, where we can live confidently and, and courageously and even joyfully no matter what day of trouble comes for us. You get a glimpse of it, I think, in the opening few verses. In spite of all that's going on, David says, Lord, you are my stronghold, though my enemies are coming against me. He says, my, my heart is not afraid. He says, even when, when war is breaking out against me, he says, I am still confident. So how does David do this in his day of trouble, and how do, how do we do this in, in ours? Verse 4 of this passage, I think, begins to tell us how. In verse 4, David says, 
He says, the one thing, the one thing that I want and that I need in order to live in this way, it's not health, it's not wealth, it's not friends or family, it's not success or achievements, though though all of those things can be good and, and fine things. David says, rather, the one thing that I desire most in order to live in this way is to, is to dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, and seeking Him in His temple. This is what David says is his is key to living. And then in the very next verse, verse 5, David says, when I do that, when that is my singular focus, no matter what is going on in my life, he says, the Lord shelters me. He, he hides me, not not from, but in the day of trouble. He conceals me. He sets me, he sets me up high on a rock, it says, above all the circumstances of my life and above my, my day of trouble. And so David's enemies, they are, they are all around him. That much is clear. They're closing in on him, but his, his head is up. He's not phased. And, and why is that? Because verse 4, he's gazing. He's gazing upon that which is most beautiful to him. Have you ever noticed how when you're feeling restless or anxious or perhaps fearful, you and I, we often seek out something, something beautiful. Very often if I'm feeling upset or unsettled, you may very well find me down at the uh, Edmonds waterfront just sitting there staring out into the ocean, gazing at the clouds and the, and the birds in the sky and just really taking it, taking it all in. For some of you, you may put on your favorite music and allow yourself to kind of be swept up by it. Some of you may go on a solitary walk in the woods. And so what are we doing? What are we doing when we do those sorts of things? I think we're calming ourselves at some level. We're calming our anxieties. We're calming our insecurities. How? Through an exposure to that which we find beautiful. There's something about beauty. All human beings need it, I think. This is why we go to the Grand Canyon, right? This is why we watch the sunset, why we go to art museums. This is why we decorate our house and paint our walls. This is why every tribe of human beings ever known to exist, in, in, in every one of those, there's always been some form of artistic expression that has nothing at all to do with usefulness or utility, but has everything to do with with aesthetics, with, with beauty. And so what is it that you find most beautiful in your life, and, and how, does it, how does it affect you when, you when you experience it? I think the Bible teaches that every human heart is longing for that which is beautiful. We're, we're all searching for it all around us in all sorts of ways, right? In music, in art, in nature, in people, and in ourselves too. But what David would tell us and what the entire Bible tells us too is that the, the extent to which we try to satisfy these longings in the wrong ways, the degree to which we look to the beauty of creation to satisfy us and calm us rather than looking to the creator behind the creation, our longings will always be just that, longings that go, that go unfulfilled. John Piper said this, he says, there, there is in the human heart an unquenchable craving for beauty. And I am persuaded that the reason it is there is because God is, is the ultimately beautiful one and he made us to long for himself. 
And we can know that our desires for beauty in this world are mere remnants of this urge for God because everything else, he says, everything less than God, he says, leaves us, leaves us unsatisfied. N.T. Wright, he refers to the beauty of creation as a signpost, pointing to a larger truth and pointing to a, a greater beauty that is just around the corner, just out of sight. He says we can't grip it, we can't get our hands on it. He says it's as though we're hearing the echo of a voice and we'd love to hear whose voice that is and what story it's telling. He says part of the joy of beauty is the realization that it is part of a larger whole, most of which appears to be just out of sight. He says we are drawn forward towards something and left waiting and wondering until that is, he says, we, we turn to Christ. St. Augustine said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He says that what you're looking for in that ocean or in that sunset or in that music or in that beautiful face, he says you're looking to beauty to, to settle yourself and to, to satisfy yourself and to, to deal with the restlessness and the churn that is, that is inside of you. But he says that only God's beauty can ever and will ever get you there. So David, I think, he says this is what life is all about. It's the one thing that we need more than anything else. It is his singular focus, and it needs to be our focus too, and that is gazing on the beauty of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord. It is the only beauty that can ever and will ever give to the human soul that which we've been looking for and all those other kind of beauties we've been looking, been looking to. And so the beauty of God, that's why we need it. But what is it? What is the beauty of the Lord? And what does it mean for David to gaze upon that beauty? Well, the word beauty is used to describe God in a number of different passages in the Old Testament, but it's not always the same Hebrew word that gets used for it. There are several Hebrew words that get across the idea of beauty, and they really help us to, to understand what it means, I think, to, to call God beautiful. In Isaiah chapter 33, for example, it says, your eyes will see the Lord in his beauty. And the word beauty there, it's conveying something about God's excellence. You will see him in his, in, his, in his excellence. In Psalm 50, it says, from Zion, and Zion is the hill in Jerusalem on which the temple was built. And we'll, we'll come back and talk about the temple in a moment. But it says, from there, from Zion, from the temple, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And there, the word beauty gives more of a sense of attractiveness and desirability. But the word David uses in verse 4 here in Psalm 27, the word beauty in this psalm is a different Hebrew word than those, and it's an interesting word that conveys a very uh, interesting meaning. It's a word, a Hebrew word that means, uh, get this, a, a perception, a perception that gives pleasure to the senses. And that's very interesting, isn't it? When David says, I'm gazing on the beauty of the Lord in Psalm 27, he's talking about a perception of God that is pleasurable, a pleasurable perception. Now, ordinarily, to perceive something mostly just means to have an awareness of a fact that is, that is useful to you, right? I perceive that a car is coming down the road, therefore I will wait right here before I step into the street. 
But this word is getting across the idea that God's beauty is far more than some, uh, simply something that you are aware of. It's much more than information that may, be, that may be useful to you. What David is saying here when he talks about the beauty of God and gazing upon it is, is that what it means to perceive God, to perceive God as he really is, is something you experience. It's sensory, and it's, and it's pleasurable. And so I'd like to ask you today, do you know something about this? Can you relate to what David is, is speaking about here? If you say, well, wait a minute, uh, Jeff, I've never experienced pleasure thinking about God. I'm aware of who he is. I understand what the Bible says about him, but I'm not really sure I've experienced that. And if that's the case, then I'd suggest to you, you haven't perceived him for who he really is. Not, not fully, because if you did, that perception would bring about a certain pleasure, a quickening of feelings and emotions and a satisfaction to your soul that is very real and very, very remarkable. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what this passage is telling us to. The 18th century preacher and author Jonathan Edwards would suggest that what David is doing in verse 4, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, experience him, finding pleasure in him, is one of the truest measures of whether the the gospel is really taking root in your heart. And he would go so far as to say, going to God to be with him, to experience him, and to, to find pleasure in him is one of the marks of a, of a true and a growing Christian. Friends, many people go to God for what he can do for them. They have certain needs. They go to him. They hope he will help them out in their life. They hope he will help them out in their marriage or their career, right? They, they go to God when uh, the storm hits. Why? Because they're hoping he can be useful to them. But Edwards would say that if the main reason you go to God is because you hope that God might be useful to you, he says that's not Christianity at all. That's religion. And Edwards would say that while the religious person sees God as, as useful, the Christian person sees God as as beautiful. The religious person is aware of who God is, but the Christian person is, is attracted to who God is. The religious person may be driven, but the Christian person is, is drawn. The religious person may be committed to God, but the Christian person is captivated by Him. Both may be obedient to God, right? Both may even be desperately seeking God, but what the religious person is usually most desperate for is what, uh, what God can do for them rather than who God offers to be to them. A religious person prays and asks God for many things and gets upset if those prayers are not answered, but a Christian is somebody that has learned that the, the deepest and most satisfying part of prayer is not asking God for anything. Rather, the deepest and most satisfying part of prayer is not at all about you. It's about Him. It's about gazing upon His beauty and worshiping him, finding pleasure in him and in his presence. And so friends, how is that going? Going for you in your life? I'm pressing the point a bit here because I think at times it needs to be pressed. This is a, a struggle for many of us. I do know that, but how, how are you approaching him and, and why are you approaching him? To get something from him or simply to, to get him? David says he is enough. He's all you need to face anything and everything that may come your way in this life. And so do you trust that? Do you, do you believe that? 
Now you may be saying at this point, okay, Jeff, can we get a bit more practical here, please? And the answer is yes. We've talked about the beauty of God, why we need it and and what it is. Let's talk about how we can see it, how we can clear away that fog, how we can see God as more beautiful in ways that make a difference in our lives like we see it doing here for David in his. In this passage, I think it gives us some clues to be sure, and one of those clues about how we can see it is that gazing on the beauty of the Lord does require on our part a certain certain pursuit, doesn't it? In verse 4, you see that David is seeking. It says he's seeking after God in the temple, and and, and so so must we. Some translations say David is inquiring of God. Other translations say David is meditating upon the Lord, meditating on who he is and what he's like, right? And I think this tells us something. This tells us, I think, that gazing on the beauty of the Lord is more than than prayer. It should include prayer, to be sure, but it is more than prayer. And it should include reading your Bible, right, of course, but it's, it's more than reading through your Bible and just acquiring more knowledge and more information. David, in this passage, and, and others too, I think, he would say that gazing on the beauty of the Lord needs to include some form of intentional meditation or contemplation of God and, and about God. And did you know that the word for meditation used in some of the Psalms is actually a word that's related to a uh, word that's used to describe a cow chewing on its cud? And that's quite an image, right? That's an interesting metaphor, but but think about it. It's pretty fitting. A cow chews on a piece of food, right? He swallows it, and then he says to himself, well, that was pretty good. I think I'll bring that back up and chew on it some more. When you meditate on the Word of God, you're trying to get all the sweetness, all the the flavor out of that piece of text, right? You're, You're reading through a passage, a passage that talks about some aspect or attribute of God, and you're not just trying to get information out of it. No, you chew it slowly, again and again. You bring it back up, and you assume that there's more there, that there are more, there's more flavor there, there are more nutrients in there that you're not yet drawing, drawing out. And as we do this, as we slow down, which we must do, we must slow down, as we slow down and meditate on the Word of God, we not only we not only ask questions of the passage, right? We need to let the, question, the passage ask questions of us too. And I do think one problem for the church today and for many of us today is that it's not necessarily that we don't read the Bible. The problem is that we don't read the Bible in a way that allows the Bible to also, to also read us. It is, it is supposed to, and we're supposed to put ourselves in a position that will allow that to happen. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 says about this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, all, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So friends, the Bible is not merely a passive object that we examine. No, it, it examines us. That's what it does. And, and we need to let it if we are to ever be changed by it. Most people, I think, read, read the Bible in the way they might read a magazine or a newspaper. We read some passages. We, we take in some information. We gain some knowledge. And then we move on. We move on with our day feeling, feeling pretty good about ourselves. 
And this is called informative reading because it informs us. And, and of course, it is needed. It is, it is necessary. We must, we must know the truth of what the Bible says. But we actually need more than just information when we read our Bibles. We need, we need transformation too. And I believe that transformation, more often than not, comes through something called formative reading of God's Word. With formative reading, you see everything turns around. With formative reading, the text is in charge. The Bible is examining you. It's asking questions of you, and, and you let it. You encourage it. You read it slowly. You read it repeatedly. But most of all, you read it in God's presence. Do you read the Bible in, in God's very presence? After all, verse four is in verse 4, as David is gazing on God's beauty, where is that gazing happening? It's happening in the temple, it says. And in the Old Testament, what is the temple? The temple is the very place of God's presence. It's where God's presence dwelt. And so, in a sense, David is saying, I'm going to gaze at you, Lord. I'm going to, to meditate upon you, Lord. Not on my own, not detached from you, but together, together with you in, in your presence. Have you ever looked at a really good painting or a really great work of art in the presence of the artist who, who created it? It's a, it's a different experience. You don't just look at it, you talk about it, right? And you talk about it to the artist and with the artist. You say, what does this mean? What does that mean? Why did you do that? Oh, oh, I love that part. Our times of meditation in the Scriptures and on the Scriptures can and should be interactive like that are, are yours. And so you take a passage that grabs your attention, you read it, you read it in God's presence, you bring it back up several times, you chew on it again and again, you draw out all the sweetness, and eventually what can begin to happen is that your awareness of His presence, it can become heightened. Your perception of Him often becomes pleasing and, and sensory even as you, as you draw near to Him and as He draws near to you. And then you turn to him, you talk to him, you say, I love that about you. you. You pray to him, you start telling him what he's like. Do you ever do this? If you've ever been in love, surely you can relate to this. You know that it's quite enjoyable to tell the person you love that you love them, that you love them, and why you love them, and how beautiful they are, right? And think about this with me. The more the more you express how wonderful they are to them, the more you tell them how beautiful they are, the more beautiful they become to you, right? And the more you enjoy them and appreciate them as beautiful. And so it is, friends, with, with our God. And I'm not making this up. It's all right here in this passage. Isn't that what David is doing in verse 6? Look at verse 6. It says this, Then my head will be high above my enemies around me, I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So David, he has all this heavy stuff going on all around him, and yet what is he doing as he gazes on the beauty of the Lord? He's, he's kind of taken up. He's swept up. He's taken outside himself. It says he's shouting for joy. He's offering up shouts of joy to the Lord. He's singing. He's making music to the Lord. This is David worshiping God and praising God, not because God removed him from his day of trouble, but because God is with him in his day of trouble. 
This is David indeed engaging in very expressive worship here, not, not because of his circumstances, but in spite of his circumstances. Many people ask the question, why is God always demanding that our highest affections must be for him? Why, why is God always telling people in the Bible to praise him and to, and to worship him? In fact, it's been said that the reason Oprah Winfrey walked away from Orthodox Christianity in her late 20s was that, that she thought God sounded too egocentric for demanding these sorts of things of us. But at some level, perhaps God tells us to do these things for our own good and for our own, for our own joy. C.S. Lewis once said, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses our enjoyment, but it completes our enjoyment, he says. It's, it's the consummation of our enjoyment, he says. He says lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are because their delight in the other is, is incomplete until it is expressed. And until it is expressed, it is not fully experienced. If you're at a Seahawks game, they score a touchdown in the final seconds of the fourth quarter to take the lead and to win the game. Your enjoyment of that moment is entirely incomplete if you stand there with your hands in your, in your pockets. You know that your enjoyment of that moment only becomes complete as you, as you clap your hands, as you, as you raise your arms, as you shout and cheer about that which you just experienced. And so David here, it's completing his joy. He's expressing himself in worship. He's singing and shouting to the Lord, it says. There's a place in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where we're told that David danced before the Lord with, with all of his might. You see, his enjoyment would not be complete apart from expressing himself in these sorts of, of ways. And so let me encourage you today, friends, please don't ever... Please don't ever be shy about lifting your voices and lifting your hands in worship here in this place and even, even dancing and shouting before the Lord if the Spirit so moves you. We're among friends here. We won't judge. And as you do, as you do these things, you may be surprised at how expressing yourself in these ways can serve to enhance and complete, really, your joy and your worship of your God in those moments. Now, if you think what I've been talking about today sounds strange, gazing on the beauty of God, I'd like to suggest to you today that if you're not doing it with God, you're, you're doing it with something. You're definitely gazing at something or someone. We, we're all doing it. A guy by the name of William Temple had a great little statement where he said, if you want to know what your real God is, consider where your mind goes when you don't have anything else to think about. He said, what does your mind gravitate toward in your, in your solitude? Do you think about that house on the beach that you hope to have someday? Do you think about your 401k and how it's, how it's doing? Do you think about your next boyfriend or your next girlfriend or that next job or that next vacation? Whatever it is you think about most of all in your solitude, you know what you're doing, right? You're gazing, you're longing, you're worshiping something, you're already doing it. And so what are, what are you gazing at in your life besides God? What are you seeing as beautiful in your life and in your future? What are you looking to to calm you, to please you, to satisfy you? Now, friends, I do hope you're feeling challenged by this passage today. I know I am, but I also hope you're feeling encouraged 
by it too. We should feel challenged because it's not always easy seeing God as the most beautiful thing in our lives. But we should feel encouraged too because David actually struggles with this too. In the first six verses of this Psalm 27, things were going well, right? In spite of David's circumstances, he, he's confident, he's unafraid, he's, he's unfazed. But then from verse 7 all the way down to verse 12, he doesn't seem all that confident anymore. He's, he's fallen off the horse and he's trying to get back on. He's a human being after all. He's, a, he's actually a guy we can, we can relate to. Did you notice that? In verse 9, he said, Lord, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn away from me in anger. Do not leave or abandon me, God of my salvation. In verse 10, he says, Lord, show me your way. Get me on a level path. In verse 12, he says, Lord, do not give me over to my enemies. Now, I'm not sure exactly what happened there, what's, what's going on there with David, but that's a pretty dramatic shift if you take a look at it again. That there's a shift that takes place as, as the passage turns that corner. Quite abruptly, we see that David is not having a good day at, at gazing on the beauty of the Lord. He's not having a good day at feeling God's presence and, and finding shelter and calm in him. Now, I do suspect, based on some of the things David says here, that David may be struggling here with some of his own sin in one way or another. Why else would he say, Lord, don't turn away from me in anger. Show me your way. Lead me. Lead me on a level path. And, and we do know, of course, that David stumbled and faltered greatly in, in sin at times, just like you and I do. In any event, David is struggling here. You can hear it. You can feel it. But he also, he also begins talking himself through it, right? He begins talking himself through and past those feelings. And you get a glimpse of that in verse 8. As he, as he begins to struggle, he says, Lord, I will seek your face. Show me your face. And that word face is the very same word for, for presence. He's saying, I will continue to seek your presence, Lord, even when it feels like you're, like you're not there. And then in the final two verses of this psalm, verses 13 and 14, he's continuing to talk himself through this. Look at verse 13. He says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. So even when he's not feeling it, even when he's struggling to see God's beauty, he says, I will, I will trust you, Lord, not based on my feelings, but in spite of my feelings. David is reminding himself of who God is and what he's done. He's reminding himself of God's faithfulness and God's, God's promises. And then in the final verse, verse 14, he keeps on going. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord, he says. And so you see what David is doing here. He's, he's talking to himself, and he's talking to us too, and he's saying, be patient. Remember who your, who your God is. The Lord hasn't gone anywhere. The fog, it will, it will lift. Be, be patient and trust him. David here is speaking truth to himself, and so must we. Pastor and preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones said that what most people don't realize is that the reason for most of your unhappiness and your struggles in your life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself when you need to be talking to yourself. Very simple, but very profound and very true, I think. Take a moment to consider your typical pattern of thinking over the course of a day. Do you spend more time talking to yourself or do you spend more time listening to yourself? More often than not, when I'm listening to myself, 
Things will be all, all over the map, really. I, I wake up in the morning and many thoughts are, are swirling around in my head, talking to me, bringing back the problems of yesterday, telling me about the problems of today, telling me I need to get out there and prove myself again, telling me I'll never be enough, reminding me of how I screwed up again, telling me that I'm an imposter and, and everybody knows it. But instead of listening to those things and even joining in on those things, instead I, I stop listening to myself and I start speaking to myself. I start speaking truth to myself, just like David is doing here in verse 14. He says, slow down, be patient, gather yourself, remember your God, remember his faithfulness, remember his promises, wait on the Lord. He hasn't, he hasn't gone anywhere. And one final point, something we must never lose sight of, of if we ever want to gaze upon the full beauty of our God. Where is the beauty of God to be found in this passage according to David? He tells us, right, in verse 4, it's in, in the temple. And the Old Testament tells us over and over again that the place where you experience the presence of God was in, was in that place, in the temple. It was a physical place. But the only way that was possible back then for the people of the Old Testament to experience the presence of God in the temple was if a certain sort of offering was made to God. You see, the temple was the place of sacrifice. It was the place where the blood of an innocent lamb would be shed. A form of temporary payment for the sins of the people would be made so that the people could, could approach God and could experience and enjoy Him. And so this was the temple. This is the it was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of atonement. It was the place where God's presence and God's beauty dwelt most fully. But then you consider how in the New Testament everything changed when, when Jesus showed up. In John chapter 2, we're told Jesus stepped into the temple, the very same temple David is speaking of. Jesus showed up and he began flipping tables and, and cracking whips. He began driving, driving people out. He began acting like, acting like he owned the place. And then in John chapter 2, verse 18, the religious leader said, by what authority do you do these things? What sign will you show us for doing these things? And in verse 19, Jesus, he answered them. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? And then in verse 21, but he, he being Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body, of his body that would be destroyed and raised up again in three days. And so what Jesus is saying here, what the Bible is saying here, and, and elsewhere too, is that the beauty of God and the, the presence of God would no longer be found in a place called the temple, rather the beauty of God and the presence of God would now be found in the person called the Christ. And so Jesus, he replaced the temple. He became not the place, but the person where the fullness of God would dwell. Jesus became not the place, but the, the person where the beauty of God is most fully and most vividly seen. Jesus became not the place where an innocent lamb would be slaughtered as a temporary atonement for sin. No, he himself became that innocent lamb who was slaughtered for you and I as a permanent payment for our sin. And do you know one of the best ways for you and I to see and to savor the beauty of this Jesus? We do it 
We do it by understanding what he gave up, what he, what he set aside, what he, what he took on for you and I. Hundreds of years before Jesus stepped into the human condition by taking on flesh and blood, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said this about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and get this, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So he had no beauty, it says, that we should, that we should desire him. And then in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, it foretold this about Jesus and what would be done to him. It says not only did he, did he have no beauty that we should desire him, it says that as he moved toward the cross, it says he was beaten so badly, verse 14, that his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human, a human being. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, who was and is beautiful beyond measure, he set aside his beauty. He emptied himself of his beauty. He became like us. He went, he went to the cross where he was beaten and battered to the point of death, even death, on a cross, and so Jesus, he set aside his beauty and he sacrificed his life. Why? Why would, why would Jesus do this? Why would God do this? Friends, Jesus became ugly so that you and I, by grace through faith, could become beautiful. Jesus Christ, who was beautiful beyond measure, he took on our ugliness, he became our ugliness and our sin so that you and I, in spite of our ugliness and sin, in God's eyes, could become, could become beautiful. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? If you don't believe that, and if you don't trust that, I hope that you might believe that and trust that for the very first time today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for this passage from David. Thank you that its words are living and active and piercing. And would they be that for us today? Would they challenge us and change us today? God, would you help us to see you as beautiful, as the most beautiful thing in our lives? Help us, God, to gaze upon your beauty in times of plenty and especially in times of trouble. God, help us to seek you, to experience you, to enjoy you, to find pleasure in you. Thank you, God, that you draw near to us as we draw near to you. Would you do that now in Jesus' name?